Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Glad you're here. And as I did last time, I'm going to open us up with a psalm that I think is relevant to the study that we have here. And that's that wonderful psalm, Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever the earth and the world were made, thou art God from everlasting and world without end. Thou turnest man to destruction. Again thou sayest, Come again, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, seeing that is past as a watch in the night. As soon as thou scatterest them, they are even as sleep, and fade away suddenly like the grass. In the morning it is green and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down, dried up, and withered. For we consume away in thy displeasure, and are afraid at thy wrathful indignation. Thou hast set our misdeeds before thee, and our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For when thou art angry, our days are gone. We bring our years to an end, as it were a tale that is told. The days of our age are threescore years and ten, and though men be so strong that they come to fourscore years, yet is their strength then but labor and sorrow so soon passeth away, and we are gone. For who regardeth the power of thy wrath? For even thereafter as a man feareth, so is thy displeasure. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Amen. I had mentioned to you last time the famous Eisenheim altarpiece that's in Colmar, France, as kind of an example, I uh, think, of a Christian sense of healing, of proper role of medicine. Can I have a volunteer here? Would you stand up here, right here next to me? Or you got a coffee in your hand. Would you volunteer for me? Stand right here. All right. All right. Yes, and I'm going to, you're going to help me fold things out. I've had this magazine since uh, I forget 1999, Smithsonian, and they had a special feature on it. You can see the famous painting there in the center of it. This is Christ on the cross. And as I mentioned to you, the uh, monks there at Eisenheim had specialized in treating a form of the plague, and they developed all these these solutions and herbal treatments and baths and so on. But they wanted to have something of a more powerful nature, and that is they hired this famous painter named Grunwald to depict Christ's suffering for the ills, the sins, the misery of the world. And this it's very graphic, surrealistic, very powerful, uh, but it communicates just how profound uh, God's identification and intimacy with us. But throughout the year, they would fold this altarpiece out to show various other scenes, and that's what I want you to see. There you go. And this is the full depiction of the Eisenheim altarpiece in Colmar, France. It's on my bucket list. Uh, next time I go to France, I'm definitely going to try to go there. Right. But it, uh, thanks. But it uh, indicates, I think, one of the goals of a Christian understanding of these end-of-life cares, and that is how can we experience the holiness of God in this stage of our life or in the stage of our life of our loved ones, our family, and our friends? How can we sense the presence of God in that which is perhaps our most weak, at times maybe even sort of unfortunate state when we feel so alone and, and, 
and completely without spirit, completely without strength, not healthy, not vibrant. But even there, we know that God is with us because you know, the Lord that we believe in, the one that was incarnate in the flesh, born of Mary, suffered and crucified and was raised again from the dead, is the Lord of the living and the dead. The Lord of the living and the dead. And so I think that kind of commitment, that belief that we have, that God is in our presence, even when we cannot think of how God would be in such presence as this, uh, should undergird and, uh, and, and fortify our ethical commitments when we have to approach these issues about end of life. Last time I talked about euthanasia and the various types of euthanasia and the struggle that we have in, in realizing that someone is about to die, excruciating pain, what is our role in, in this person's death? And I think there we are called upon to give witness of our faith, to give testimony to what we really believe in. Can I act towards this dying person in a state of what I called unction, that is, a sacramental presence here? Can our actions, our commitments, our behavior towards these people who are in the last moments of their life give testimony to the holiness and the glory of God in this kind of experience? And I think there can be those sort of instances. We should all pray that... Um, when we are faced with such moments as this, that the natural course of life, as painless as possible, would come and we wouldn't have to be, in a sense, an act of mercy towards that person. But as I mentioned to you, I think there can be those rare cases in which we can actually help a person to welcome their death because of their excruciating pain, the misery that they're in, and the shortness of life that they have. All right, what I want to do today is to apply that kind of thinking. That is, how can we experience the holiness of God? How can we act in a way that gives glory to God in the issue of suicide? And then in particular after that, this idea of the physician-assisted suicide. And then next Sunday, the last Sunday of this series, I'm going to talk about the idea of what's called medical futility. That is, when would we think that it would be futile to have any more care, uh, health care, treatments for a person. And then if I have enough time to talk about that, I'm going to try to, I'm going to finish it off with this idea of what's called death with dignity. Death with dignity. Those are two big concepts, just as the two big, two issues that we're dealing with today are very much in our forefront and when we think about end of life, that is people committing suicide. And when is it right for a physician or someone else who's sort of a a writer with a physician uh, helps someone to take their life, physician-assisted suicide. I contrasted our first time one second, the Christian ethic with what I call the popular non-religious <coughs> ethic. Now, I do think it's popular, and it's not really shaped by religious commitment. That is, I think probably in the last 25 years or so throughout our country, we've adopted a certain ethical attitude that's been around a while. It's probably in some ways a direct result of what's called the Enlightenment period of the, of the 18th century out of Europe and then here in the America. And that is where the most important commitment that you have is for your autonomy, your own self-determination. 
that is at all costs, you must always maximize your happiness so that you can be in the greatest control of your life. I think that's a very popular view. It has really sort of made its way almost like a tidal wave through our society, making everything adjust to that kind of commitment. That is, does this contribute to my happiness? Is this how I exercise as much control and management of my life as possible? And a lot of major institutions, from families to churches to medicine, has had to shift in order to make way for this kind of popular non-religious ethic. But I contrast that with the Christian ethic, just to review a little bit of this, that is, our aim is not necessarily autonomy, self-determination, but to how to glorify God, how to experience the holiness of God in our life. That means then we do this through the love of God and the love of our neighbor. We're always under the command to love our neighbor. There's never any exception, ever any episode, any kind of event that could happen in which we would not be under the command to love our neighbor because it's in that that we also love God and hence experience the holiness of God. And because of that also, I believe we, we know that our life is a gift. It is something that God has given us. God made the world, we're part of it, and said it is good. And God equipped us to be able to commune with God on the Sabbath rest. Hence, life is a gift that leads us to appreciate God even more so. It's not that I appreciate God in order to make my life better. No, I make my life better in order to appreciate God more so. So my gift of life here is a way in which I can glorify God and experience His presence. And also, I would say that's in eternity as well. Our, our life with God for eternity the ways that we are equipped by God to experience God for eternity is as much as a gift as the ways in which God has created us now, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, to be able to sense the presence of God. All this is part of the great bounty of our Creator. And then um, the fourth one here is that our purpose as Christians when we think about these is not just what I think individually or what's good for you or just good for me, but what's good for the church's witness. What's good for that tradition that sprang with the apostles that give testimony to the resurrection of Christ? How can we further that great work of the church here? And these issues are very, very serious issues. They're delicate issues because they deal with life and death. They deal with intense feelings. They deal with loss. They deal with hopes and frustrations. How can the church give testimony to our belief in God, to the idea that our gift of life enables us to love God and to love our neighbor in these very vexatious issues. First of all, let's talk about suicide before we talk about physician-assisted suicide. Um, I think you could say that obviously suicide is a person taking her or his own life whatever means that may do it. Uh, but it's when I decide that I'm going to take my life and I do something of which the effect is my death. All right. I think others may want to categorize this a little differently and there are sort of, sort of sub-points underneath of these and there's obviously something that overlaps all four of these, but I think there are four types of suicide. The first of all is what's called the Stoic suicide. This is born out of those great Stoic teachers like Cicero and Seneca, who in, in their Stoic philosophy felt like the most important thing in your life is that you live in conformity with what's called the logos, that is the rational ordering of the world. 
you're most happy when you're most rational. And you have to sort of sublimate and control your emotions because they discombobulate you. All the things like grief and passion and misery and sorrow. These things can disorient you and you lose control of your life. Now, for instance, think about like the emotions of love. How common it is for us to associate that with losing control of your life. Like the phrase, fall in love. See, a stoic would always sort of discourage that because you lose control. When you lose control, you lose your right ordering with the world. Now, there can be some instances in which by health or political or social circumstances, you've lost control and you cannot control your life. And so the Stoics argued in those kinds of instances, when you're no longer in control of your life, it is rational for you to commit suicide. It is rational. Why? Because the primary purpose is that you are in harmony with the order of the universe, which means you must be in control rationally of your life. When you lose that control, therefore you can take your life. That's a Stoic justification. The second one is one of shame. That is, some people commit suicide because they have brought such shame on their lives. They cannot live with that shame. And in a way, they feel like that would be a proper result of the shameful acts that they have done. You could think of some, you, you hear this often, not, not, I guess you do hear it here, but mainly in some uh, what's called shame-based cultures like Japan is a shame-based culture. When some CEO gets caught embezzling funds or makes some sort of egregiously wrong decision that brings financial ruin to the company and the family, they'll take their life out of shame, that they feel that that's a proper response, that their life no longer has value because of the shameful things that they did. I think that may happen. I do think it's kind of rare, though, but it may happen. Uh, three is uh, many people justify suicide as an escape. That is, their misery, their sorrow, their intense pain is so great, they take it upon their own to get out of it. They escape it. I think this is the great majority of suicides. I have, unfortunately, been, been around three, three different suicides in my life. And, uh, uh, in fact, when I was a freshman in college many years ago, I found a, a classmate who committed suicide. And to this day, I'm not, and every now and then when I get together with some of college classmates, we talk about this. We don't know why Raymond took his life. We don't know enough. The family kept that very, very private for us. But we had a family member who took her life, and also I had a friend and a child who took his life. And in each of these incidents, uh, the, the pain was so great. Uh, with my uh, stepmother-in-law, uh, she took her life because she suffered with a horrible psychiatric illness. In fact, when I was asked to preach her sermon, uh, I, I mentioned that I've known people who have died of cancer and of heart disease, and I think Jenny died of her psychiatric disease. But her pain was so great, we couldn't imagine what she was going through. And she took her life. It was a form of escape. We wish she hadn't. We wish we could have come up with something. Is the world better off? No, it's not. But she did it as an escape. Uh, well, I, I double-typed that escape. Um, I, I meant to put Onway, E, I, I guess I was drinking too early in the morning when I typed that. Onway, E-N-N-U-I, it's the French word for boredom. Some people commit suicide just because they don't think life is worth living. The future is not worth waiting for. Uh, it's not that there's a good or bad or right or wrong, there's just nothing. So why continue this kind of nothingness? Onway sort of absolute boredom with life. This is 
often associated with Camus' famous novel called The Stranger. Marisolt, who is in jail, comes to this position, and he's in there for a capital crime, but his life is not worth living, so it doesn't matter to him whether he's executed or not. Some people commit suicide for that reason. Well, uh, I would say the common denominator in each of these instances, even though the motive may be quite different, is that some person thinks that it's just best for them to be dead, for to die, that their life no longer has any kind of significant meaning to them. Well, how can we think about this? First of all, with a popular view, uh, that is, if we accept its principles as major premises in the argument, and that is the the aim of your life is to be autonomous, self-determining. You are the master of your life, and you're most actualized as the person you are when you are most in control of your life. And you can think of some instances, either the shame or just the misery that you're in, that suicide would be sort of a logical result of such a commitment. That is, since I am the master of my life, I try to master my life. And the obstacles and impediments that I come up against, if I cannot overcome them, that they overcome me and I've lost control, whatever that may be, it may be socially or it may be physically, it's at that point in which it's probably permissible for me to go ahead and die. It would be sort of the last act of an autonomous person. It is my self-determination. Now, interestingly, uh, like I said, I think this has become a very popular viewpoint in our country. That is suicide. That's a person's right to do so. Now, we think in ethics that there's a sort of a, a principle. I, if we picked at it long enough, we might not want to totally accept it, but it's kind of a guideline for a lot of people that if there is a right, there is a corresponding duty. Like, I have a right not to be murdered. Therefore, society has a duty to provide police protection for our citizens because of that. For every right, there's a corresponding duty. And so in our society, we're now thinking that since you have a right to take your life, if you choose to do so, because it's yours and nobody else's, then some way or another, it's a duty to society, a duty of society to grant you that, to allow that to happen. And we're going to see here in a minute that that becomes a very sort of compelling argument for physician-assisted suicide. That is, if a person has a right to determine when they want to die, then the corresponding duty would fall upon a physician or someone else to help them reach their, their goal, and that is suicide. However, I want to think about this in terms of our Christian faith. You know, the goal of our life is not autonomy as a, as a Christian, self-determination. That's, that's not our goal. Now, of course, you make choices of self-determination. That is, I, I got up and I made a choice to be here. I am going to pay my bills this week, and at the end of the, uh, the year, I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm going to do all these sort of things. I make choices in order to, in a sense, maximize my life. That's, that's, that, that, that's just perfectly good sense there. However, though, what about the aim of my life, the purpose of my life? Now, I may lose you on this. No, no, I won't. You are exceptionally bright people. You even know more about this than I am. But forgive me if I sort of throw out some sort of you know, heavy-duty words, but uh, the great philosopher named Aristotle, uh, whom I, I think is very, very influential, well, I know him, probably me, uh, but on any kind of good ethical system, um, Aristotle said all our aims have aims, and those aims fulfill the pursuit of those aims. For instance... If I have a toothache, what is my aim? To get rid of the toothache. How do I do that? I go to a dentist. All right. So I go to the dentist because it reaches an aim for me. 
helps me fulfill the goal to have you know, abs- elimination of pain in my jaw or something like that. Well, what Aristotle argued is that uh, since all aims have aims and those aims fulfill the prior aim, is it possible to have a what he called a chief aim, a final aim, the aim of which all their aims are aimed and it justifies itself? He raises that question. And he writes this really wonderful book that I teach all the time, and I love teaching it. I've been teaching it for decades now. It's called Nicomachean Ethics, in which he sort of lays out a plan in which we can realize, find our chief aim, our final aim. Well, of course, all of us have aims to control our life. I pay my deals, I I buy insurance, I do all those sort of things to gain some sort of control of my life. But what is the aim of all of our aims? Well, in the popular non-religious ethic, it is autonomy, self-determination, maximizing control over my life. But for a Christian, what is my chief aim? How do I gauge what I do to be meaningful? What is the, you know, the end of the destination, so to speak? You know, for instance, this past uh, uh, holiday, uh, my wife and I drove to Nashville to see my in-law. I mean, my daughter-in-law's family. We had a great time. And if I'd gone on Interstate 65 and turned south, would I get to Nashville? No, I wouldn't. I have to turn north on Interstate 65. I've got to know how to get there, but the destination determines how I get there. That's the point. The destination determines the route that I take. The goal, the chief aim, the goal of our life should determine the means by which we get there. Those means have to be proper. They have to be related, fitting, in order to get to the chief aim. All right, our chief aim is to glorify God and experience God's holiness. How can I act in a way to get me to that? How can I take a north on, on Interstate 65 and get to Nashville? How can I act concerning suicide and physician of suicide, physician assisted suicide that would give us the way to give testimony that we are glorifying God by our action? So as that, as we bring that sort of commitment, that chief aim, to our the discussion on suicide, the Christian is always saying faith and hope determine our life, not misery and despair, no matter how taxing the experience can be. And I suspect each of you in your own way and own times has, has gone through that dark night of the soul in which you just, you don't know how you're going to put one step ahead of the next. And we all will experience that even more so in our life. Well, see, the other view says, well, maybe it's time for us to just quit. But the Christian says, no, even in the darkness, we have faith and hope. Why? Because my faith and hope is not in my power to achieve my chief aim. My faith and hope is that God has already given me my chief aim. That God has already bequeathed to us in the great testimony of the Scriptures, in the life of Christ, in the prophets, in the law, in the Abrahamic covenant, what is the goal of my life. So no matter how, how innervating, dispiriting the experience can be, Nonetheless, we can find faith and hope in a moment like that. So, and, and none of us are, 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 are immune from those, those miseries that drive people to think about suicide. No, none of us are. You know, faith doesn't equip you to be perfect. It doesn't give you, you know, a rhinoceros's skin of which you cannot be pierced. Not, not at all. Faith just equips us to be able to, to handle the piercing of life with faith and hope. And again, I, I want to come back to this idea that it's the witness of our church, our community of faith, 
that's at stake in here. It's not just my well-being. It's not what do I want, but what is good for the church? How does this promote the body of Christ's witness? How does this equip the saints to come together even more so to proclaim the glory of God? Can my actions give tribute to my predecessors, the saints like my parents and my grandparents and, and all those great people all the way back to Abraham? Can my life fit with them and my, my choice that I make about this? Also, and I think this needs to be said, uh, as Christians, we just have to be non-judgmental about those people who are in that situation and about the families who, who have to endure a suicide. We just cannot be judgmental about that. There but by the grace of God go I. And I am just as frail and fragile as anyone who has hanged themselves, poisoned themselves, taken their life in some way or another. And it's not my role to judge the fate of that person to stand as the judge over them and say that you are excluded, not only from uh, my, my, my approval of you, but from my prayers for you. No, no Christian can say that. You know, just as is true in the Bible that we give witness to God as our creator and our dreamer, I mean our redeemer, it is as true and as clearly and as adamantly said from the law to the prophets to the gospels to the apostles' writings, thou shalt not judge. Thou shalt not. Now that doesn't mean everything's equal. That doesn't mean everything should be tolerated. There are still right and wrong. We can still, in a sense, censor things. C-E-N-S-O-R. Like I, I censor pornography. I don't have to be tolerant about pornography or, or whatever, or hatred or racism or sexism or anything like that in order, non, uh, in order to be non-judgmental. But we should not censor things. I, this is academic talk, I know, but splitting hairs. But that's C-E-N-S-U-R-E. There's a world of difference between censoring and censoring things. Censoring things is condemning things for what they are. Because of your sin, I condemn you. Because of your weakness, that you attempted suicide, I reject your value as a person. I cannot do that. I may say suicide is wrong. And like I said, of the suicides that I've known, the world is not better because they took their life. It's just not. We're still not over Jenny's death. We'll never be over her death. And this friend in our church who lost her son in an impulsive act of escape, I don't see how they make it. Well, be that as it may, I still cannot judge them for what they did. Because our testimony is found in our unbelievable compassion and commitment to people regardless of who and what they have done. So I, I, I urge you, I think the Christian position is that suicide is never a Christian act. There is a difference with martyrdom. A Christian, we understand martyrdom. That's when a person it willingly will accept death as a witness to a purpose greater than themselves not as an indication of the futility or the worthlessness of the life. So Christian martyrdom, I think, is re part of our faith. Uh, but suicide cannot be an act of the glory of God, I don't think, or a witness of God's holiness. But we should, nonetheless, um, be, be uh, non-judgmental and compassionate towards people and families who go through this. All right, now want to apply it uh, to this this 
very contemporary issue, physician-assisted suicide. Dr. Huddleback here, if any of you know him, physician on staff uh, at the medical school at UAB, has done a lot of research and studying and publications on this, and, and I've read some of this stuff and I've learned a lot about it. And it is a very sort of complicated issue that now medicine has been forced to deal with, physician-assisted suicide. Uh, just as an aside here, uh, whenever you run across that word, the word physician and assisted is always hyphenated, and I've wondered about that. In fact, this morning when I was preparing for this, I went online to find out who was the first person to hyphenate that and why. Tom, do you know? I don't know, the I don't know either. I'm not, I'm not for sure why all of a sudden we've hyphenated the word assisted to the word physician. It's almost like they belong together, which I am reluctant to do, by the way, very, very reluctant to do. So maybe we ought to just erase that hyphen there. But uh, physician-assisted suicide, and, and Tom, fill in the blanks if, if I don't have all the right answers on this, but I think at the moment, uh, I could be wrong, maybe this past uh, part of, uh, earlier this month there were some state elections that I'm just unaware of, but prior to November the 8th, there were five states that legalized physician-assisted suicide, and there's some differences among the five, but if those conditions are made, made it is legal for a physician uh, to to be instrumental in the suicide of a person. Um, I think Washington, D.C. has also granted this, I believe. Uh, but these are the five. California, uh, Montana, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. And I do think that uh, there will be more and more states that will legalize physician-assisted suicide because it is a, sort of an expression of this autonomy, this principle of self-determination that is becoming the most popular and well-utilized uh, ethical principle in our society. And so, like I said earlier, if you have a right to suicide, that is, it's your right to determine that, then there is a corresponding duty. Somebody should give you that right and somebody should also assist you in that. And so we put a tremendous amount of pressure upon physicians, healthcare people, uh, to enable people to exercise their right to die, the right of suicide. Um, uh, I'll, I'll pick on Tom just because I know him. Uh, when you were in med school, was this ever brought up? When you this issue of when is it permissible for you to assist in the death of somebody? Uh, no. Anyone, anyone else in here? A nurse or a doctor? Or, or, that's right. That's right. Um, well, in, in sort of a very, very general sense, most of these states have applied three conditions for this. That is, it's a reasonable crest from the patient. It cannot be impulsive, uh, capricious. They usually a time period. That is, you have to give a request and wait two weeks or something like that and you have to give it again. That is, uh, a physician will contribute to the person's death only if that physician is convinced that it's a reasonable request. Secondly, there has to be terminal illness. Terminal illness. And that is from six months to a year to die. Now, uh, what we're finding out, i, I got to pick up the pace on this, like in uh, the Netherlands, the, as a country, it was the first to legalize physician-assisted suicide. And at first, the law allowed it only for terminal illness. However, though, now they're allowing it for all kinds of cases, depression, and even infants. They're, like last year, I think over 600 infants were killed by physicians 
uh, in uh, the Netherlands in which the physician made a choice, a decision about the, about the infant that this, this infant here because of the disabilities or whatever, uh, it's time for that person to die because uh, they would die anyhow. And so there's sort of a slippery slope involved in this. Now, what, what sort of moves or pushes that slippery slope, I think, in our society is that we're so committed to self-determination as the preeminent paramount ethical principle. And so if I'm terminally ill, then I should have physicians assist me in death. But what if I just don't want to live anymore? And I cannot conceive taking my own life. I cannot you know, do it on my own self. I lack courage enough to take my own life. Then there must be a duty for somebody else to assist me. And that's becoming more and more so. And I would think, now I may sound like a prophet of doom on this, but in the next 25 years, we're going to see this more and more throughout society. And then there has to be a second opinion. Another physician has typically be involved in this. As I mentioned in theory, the changing practice of physician-assisted suicide from terminal illness to disability and then to the wish to die. All right, here are arguments for and against physician-assisted suicide. As I've already alluded to, that, that those who argue for physician-assisted suicide and those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago when I started this, I read this article from the New York Times on assisted suicide going beyond do no harm. This is a physician who teaches at Duke Medical School. And he makes a point that it's time that uh, we allow and justify physician-assisted suicide in our society. And as he says, because... Um, uh, we need to be able to offer an uh, option for those who desire assisted suicide so that they can openly take control of their death. Here's the physician saying this. Now, what has, for centuries and centuries, ever since probably even before the Hippocratic Oath, uh, that has prevented uh, physicians from assisting in people's suicide was the principle of do no harm. Never give anything that would actually lead to the harm of a patient. And what he argues here. Uh, War Rachnov, he argues that we need to get rid of that principle, do no harm. And the reason why we've got to move it over to make more room for the principle of autonomy of the patient, that's why. Well, <clears throat> so here in this sense, medicine then is seen as a servant to the patient. A servant to the patient. The patient's wishes I must meet. And hence, the word provider is used a lot. Medical provider. You hear that a lot, healthcare provider. Frankly, I don't like that word, provider. Uh, I think it has a connotation to it that belies the purpose of medicine as a whole, healthcare as a whole. That is, if, if you go to a cafeteria and you're walking down the road, you want jello, it's provided you. All right, if you want meat and three, it's provided you. Here, there's, the consumer determines the product that the consumer wants. And so we have providers that meet the needs of the consumer. And so this notion that now physicians are providers is similar to like going to the cafeteria. This, the consumer knows best. The consumer knows best. I, I have a right to die, therefore you should provide me a means. Like I said, this is exerting tremendous influence upon a profession that is far older than our consumer's market, by the way. And in my opinion, I, I think, I don't know exactly what Tom would say about this, but I think he might share some of this with me. I think this is dramatically changing the profession of medicine, too. 
And here, it's more of a contract. Medicine is more of a contract. I could go on a long time about this, and I, I think I'm plausible on this, but I, I admit I may be open to criticism on this, that uh, uh, the, the marketplace and the role of technology in medicine is forcing medicine to see itself as a contractual arrangement with either hospitals or clinics or patients or pharmacies or whatever. That is, they are forming contracts and they have contractual obligations to live up to. And so if you have a patient or you are a patient, you go and you think, well, this is my contractual obligation. You owe me this. You are to be a provider. Well, I, how does the Christian think about this? How, what should we think about the healthcare people, uh, physicians and nurses and pharmacists and so on? Well, their goal has to be our goal as well. That is, as a Christian, a Christian physis, I mean, physician or nurse. And that is, how can they use their profession to glorify God? Just like I am a professor. Uh, I've got a PhD. I've, um, I've gone through a lot of schooling. I go through a lot of uh, extra stuff to do what I do. Uh, but because I'm a Christian, and I'm also ordained as a minister, I see my role primarily to glorify God. There's a purpose bigger than my profession bigger than my own mastery of it, bigger than actually what I do as a teacher. And that is, can what I do enable people to understand more of the holiness of God, the experience, the presence of God? At the end of the day, I hope I am judged by whether I actually did contribute to the glory of God, rather than how much I've published or how many students liked or disliked what I've done. That is, will people know more about the witness of Christ? And that is also true with anyone in healthcare. That is, if you're a Christian and you're in healthcare, you're as much under that kind of obligation or that chief aim, that destination, that final purpose as anyone else. How can I use my profession to glorify God? And for that reason, now this is not original with me. I wish I were this bright, but I'm not. I get this from a book. And this is a book, if you're interested in these things, I think is worth your reading by a man named William May. Teaches at Southern Methodist University. He's big in bioethics. William May, it's called Active Euthanasia and Healthcare Reform, Testing the Medical Covenant. And he contrasts the, the notion of medicine as contract with the medicine as covenant in this. And that obviously he is arguing that from a Christian point of view, we have to see these professions as acts of covenant. Now, let's think about that. What does it mean to be in a covenant versus just being in a contract? A contract usually has something very specific in mind. That is, I want this you know, 2016 Chevrolet. That's what I want. And then they provide that with me, and we have a contract that obligates us to do that. They give me what I bought, and I give them money for what I am buying. Okay, that's the contract. But a covenant is a bond that enhances the purpose of people. That's what a covenant is. Like a, if a marriage is just a contract, pretty well it's not going to last all that long. A marriage has to be a covenant. That it's got to stand something. It's got to stand for something bigger than the two people. Otherwise, eventually, they will dissolve their relationship. Well, um, what May argues is that we need to see medicine as a covenant. How can these people be bonded with society in such a way that the purpose of life, the purpose of what it means to be a human being, can be realized? Now, if your purpose is self-determination, then you. The best way to do that is forming a contract. But if your purpose is to be oriented towards God, toward transcendence, the best way to feel the obligation towards a patient 
or as a patient towards the healthcare people, is I now in a contract, I mean a covenant with them. And the goal of this would to be maximize care. That if I go and, and I, I had some heart tests this, this past August, I think it was, no, no, September, um, and everything came out all right. But I, you know, I, I went through the full nine yards with that, all that. And I sort of said, here I am, test me. I gave them my body. They stuck things in me and they put things around and made me sit still and drink stuff and all this stuff. And I said, okay, here I am. I trust you. And what I'm trusting is that your acts towards me is born out of care, not profit. Born out of commitment to care for me. Now let me say, in light of that then, I think this says something about the healthcare professions. A profession. We use that word, and it's, and it's a good word to describe doctors and nurses and uh, physician aides and so on. That is, they are professionals. I, I, I'm drawing attention to myself, but I am considered a professional. It took a lot for me to get my job, a whole lot. I had to get a lot of training to get my job. In a way, I not only had to master material, had to take all these exams and write a dissertation and all that. But I also had to show to the people who conferred the doctorate on me that I know what this study is about. It's not just mastering the study, but it's mastering the purpose of the study. And in my field, in philosophy, of course this is highly debated in philosophy. There are some people who reject it altogether. I don't think they're very good philosophers for doing that though. But that is, I am committed to some sense of wisdom. I'm pretty Socratic and Platonic and Aristotelian about that. That my discipline, all that stuff I had to learn, really hard stuff too, embarrassing stuff, is aiming towards wisdom. Like with physicians and nurses and stuff, what are they aiming for? What is the aim of that? It's not just a body of knowledge. They're not just chemists, are they? They're not just physiologists, are they? Anatomologists. What are they? They are in the art of healing. They are in the art of healing. They have some sort of understanding about what it takes to heal a person, body, soul, and spirit. And so a physician then comes to a patient and says, all right, here I am, I am committed to your care. And I think I know in light of what I've studied, in light of my experience, in light of those great mentors and cases that I've studied in my life, how to contribute to your healing to do so. What do you think, Tom? What, uh, you, you are, you're a professional as a, as a MD. How do you see yourself as a professional? I'm, I'm putting him on the spot. But. I think there's a lot of parallel between the way you've explicated how we should think about this from the standpoint of being a Christian. You've done it in a very sort of relational and personal way. You know, if this is who we are, this is our relationship with our Lord, what follows from that? And I think the same thing one could say, you know, what follows from the kinds of relationships we have with patients, you know, from the doctor's point of view, I mean, what's that like? Um, what comes out of that? And what comes out of that is care, and not only care, but responsible care. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a sense of parentalism. I mean, when people are sick, they're dependent, and I mean, all the things you see in Psalm 90 yeah. are the sick patient, right? And that patient needs to be taken care of, right? And so, so what follows from that? And I think, I think the clue to that for medicine 
is not necessarily what we say. Because if you look at opinions about physician-assisted suicide, we're all over the map. All right. We reflect the general population. But if you look at willingness to do it, willingness to participate in it, very few physicians want to do this. I've read that, I think, close to 58 are theoretically for it, but only like like 20 are practically willing to do it. And the people that work most closely with the dying are the least willing to do it. Yeah. And I think it's for this reason, because um, you're committed to the art of healing, and how can your assistance in suicide be an act of healing? How can it? Now, I would think in the rarest of rarest of cases, like I said last week, you can think of that fox hose incident, a scenario of someone being a fox hose, in which it might be right for me actually to help somebody die as an act of mercy for that. Rarest occasion that it might be, in that instance, perhaps an act of healing. I'm, I'm having to cover my tracks a lot in saying this, and uh, but I, 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 I am well aware that our, our, our choices and the situations that people get into are sometimes so ambiguous, and you feel so helpless when you're in them. You, you're just making the best you can to get through it. I wish we all could have. You know, relatively upfront, clear torches to make, but sometimes we make choices only as fallen, limited sinners. And that's the best we can do. And so in some instances, I think. But my point is that as a person who is, who is in healthcare, a nurse, a physician, or whatever, that as, especially as a Christian, can I act in this way that would lead to the glory of God? And I would say it would be, I am committed to the maximization of care, regardless of what it takes, for you in this moment here. I am not, will ever, ever contribute to the idea that your life is not worth living. Therefore, I'll help you to realize that. All right, just got a couple more minutes. Anybody have another comment or two you want to make about this? Yes, sir. I have a question. Uh, it's maybe the category of Christian ethics, I'm not sure. But one of your early slides talked about the biblical command to love your neighbor. My question is how you define neighbor. Is that Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, or is it just your next to the guy that lives down the block? Uh, that's another yeah. tough question, isn't it? Um, you got 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the love of neighbor is the basis also for the love of our enemy. And uh, we're commanded by Christ to love our enemy. We love God, therefore we should love our neighbor. And in loving our neighbor, at times we have to love our enemy to do so. And so I know this will be very, very unsatisfactory to probably most of the world. If I had the possibility to determine the fate of Joseph Stalin, it still has to be an act of love. Can I say your life is not worth living, therefore I'm going to take your life, and that be an act of love? And I don't think so. I don't think you can do that. A Christian can never censor, even though we may censor, that I would say what you've done is heinous, and you'll have to stand before the judgment seat for what you've done, but I am not your judge. I cannot take your life because I now think your life is not worth living. That's what a Christian cannot do. Even if a person is suicidal, I can't do that. Even if they think my life is not worth living, I'm saying our story is bigger than me and you as well. And our story is the ultimate glory of God. I know some of you need to go. Well, bless you. Uh, may the Lord's peace be upon you.
And next Sunday, we'll talk about futility and death with dignity. All right. Good day. Thanks. Thank you.